I did turn this on, didn't I? There we go. Good. Good evening. How are y'all doing? Back back for another week of Revelation. Y'all, y'all keep coming back. That's impressive. After last week, though, I mean, holy cow. Right? The throne room, that was that was that was just staggering. That was just amazing. Just amazing. Between between the sermon series and Jay's teaching, he's he's just doing, you know, see see his good works and give glory to the Father above, right? See his good works and give glory to the Father above. That's just that's awesome. Absolutely awesome. Um, tonight we're going to be Revelation. We're going to do, uh, and I hope you got both handouts. There are two handouts. Um, the, the, I'm going to teach the first one, which is the, the seven seals, which will be Revelation 6 through 8, 5. And then Jay is going to come up. He's going to come in a little bit, and then he's going to go through some of the interpretive you know, kind of schools of thought on Revelation. Go through that a, a, a little bit it, it, relatively briefly, assuming I can go through the seven seals relatively briefly. Um, yeah, thanks. <laughs> Yeah, I, could, I appreciate the encouragement as y'all laugh at me. Yeah, we've been, we've been through this together, haven't we? Yeah, we remember Ezekiel. Yeah, we can, we can motor. We can motor. Slido, as you see on the screens, right? Y9, Y976. For those of y'all don't know Slido, you can go to a website on your, your tablet or your phone, put in a question. You can also like other people's questions. That'll bring it up in the list for us to look at. And we'll, if we've got some, you know, the odds of us having time is pretty low. But if we have time, we'll, we'll do Q&A at the end. I hope you brought a snack. So, um, and I just dropped my glasses. Um, yeah, that makes things more exciting. Um, let's pray and get started. Father God, we are thankful. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your son that saves us. Thankful for your word. Uh, thankful for, for the truth that in, the, in this chaos that is around us, Father, that, that, you, that you show us your steady hand and your sovereignty. That even when things go bad, even when things are difficult, that, that we know you are in control. We know your sovereign hand. That's what we get to see tonight, Father. That, that, that no matter what happens, Father, you are on your throne. And Father, we worship you. And so uh, open our hearts and our minds to your, to your truth, Father. Change us. Uh, don't let us be the same people that came in here. Um, that, that when we leave, uh, when we encounter your truth, Father, we should be different people, be more Christ-like. So uh, give us the humility to change and the, and the hearts and minds to understand. It's in the precious name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Oh, good. It took the nose piece off. So that's going to be exciting. Um, all right. So we're going to be over in Revelation 6. And uh, I, I love how Jay kind of set the tone for, for our study through Revelation, that, that what, we're, what we're talking about is worship, right? That John, when he, when, when he opens the book, right, he is in worship. He, uh, he, he's worshiping, thank you very much. He's, he's even on the, uh, he's even keeping, right, in, in exile, he's keeping the Lord's time. Right? He knows it's the Lord's day. He knows he's in worship. And so the whole context of these visions is worship. That, that, that we are in worship. And then we saw in, in chapters 2 and 3, right, he, he wrote letters to the churches. He was standing among the lampstands, right, standing among his churches, that, that Christ is among his people, right? He's not over his people, he's not, but, but he is among his people. And he wrote, wrote of the strengths and the weaknesses of each church. And we talked about that was both to the local congregations directly, and it was also to us, our, our modern-day church. Right into us and, and the strengths and weaknesses and the ways we can the ways we can be faithful and the ways we can be found unfaithful and need to, and need to correct and follow. Them. And then of course last week right we were in the throne room, right and we and we saw the scroll and it was sealed with seven seals and John cried out, right who is worthy to open the scroll, who is worthy to open the scroll right and he saw the slain lamb stand. He saw the slain lamb stand right who was worthy to open the scrolls. 
And so we found that Christ, right, is worthy, and, and it brought about worship, and it, and, and it brought about worship. And so uh, as, we, as we head to, 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 to chapter 6, um, let's read the scripture, and then I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about going into this. And then um, let's, let's, let's read, we're going to read 6 through 8, 5, and then uh, come back and talk about this. Okay. Chapter 6, now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its riders had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And he came, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth. So that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider was, rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by, the, by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. And the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slaves and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Holding back the four winds of the earth. That no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Nephtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 
12,000 from the tribe of Ishkar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, so 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Wow. Wow. Um, a couple things to a couple couple of start, things to start off. This is this is kind of the wall in Revelation. Uh, it's like when you're reading through the Bible and you hit Leviticus or Numbers, right? You have to kind of lock the differentials, go into four wheel low. Kind of this is that same point in Revelation, right? First first five chapters, right? John's in worship, letters to churches, throne room, pretty good. Right, this is this is where things start to get start to get difficult. This is where in, in, a lot of different things come into play, and so what we're going to do is approach this very humbly. We're, we're going to approach this and, and with grace for each other. L- lots of people have been brought in lots of different ways to this. Just in looking at the rider of the first horse, I picked up five different commentaries. Guess how many opinions there were on who the rider of the first horse was? Yeah, it's just just about right five. Right, there are five different opinions. You're just and so. All, all of this is, is, is complex, but what we're going to do is look at what we know to be true, right? Look at what, what can we look at simply and understand, and then how do we apply it, right? One of the, one of the things that, that kind of help look through this, Revelation is arranged, uh, uh, seems to be arranged more cyclically than chronologically, Right, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, right, seven letters. There's these, there's these cycles, so it's like a musical piece. Right, and if you if you listen to great musical pieces, right, each each time each iteration through it, you'll get more detail, you'll hear something new, 
And so, as remember, like John wrote, right, when he wrote the, the, the uh, Gospel of John, is not arranged chronologically, right? It's arranged theologically. And it, this, writing, this writing is similar. Uh, this writing is similar. Um, time. Uh, when, you know, when, 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 will it, when will it all end, right? Matthew 24, 14, right? The gospel will be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. Right? That's, that's when the end's coming. The gospel preached to all nations, and then the end will come, right? And, and today, right, when we think of these last days, right, the last days began with the, with, with the resurrection of Jesus. We are in these last days, right? And Christ is coming. Christ is coming back. And so the, these, are the, these are the days, um, we are in these last days between the first and second coming. And so, um, so Christ takes the scroll and breaks the first seal. So who, who is the first writer? There's, there's, as, as I said, there's lots of, lots of, different, lots of different thoughts. Uh, some commentators saw it as the conquering kings of the world. Um, I think you can really make the case that the first writer is Christ himself. Uh, he's on a white horse. Uh, he has a bow. There, there, there's Old Testament scripture with him with a bow. Uh, later in chapter 19, right, we'll see him come back on the right horse. Uh, there is also a, in a historical context, and I stole this from Jay, right? There, there are the Parinthians who came, uh, who, who are really antagonistic to the Roman legions, right? The Roman, Roman legions are powerful and mighty, just like the world is powerful and mighty. But these Parthians were on horses with bows, and they just bugged the crud out of the Romans because they were quick, they could fire from a distance. Right? They, they just kind of ran circles. And so, and so you know, just like Caesar was on his throne, he was not all powerful. And just like when we see these things in the world, when we see disease, when we see disasters, when we see these things, these are not all powerful. Right? Our, our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign over these things. Uh, and then Eugene Peterson said, you always start with Jesus, which seems to be pretty sound advice. We go through these. Uh, seal 2. The red horse of war, right? To be alive is to be at war. Genesis 3. But when we fell, right, everything God said, right, the rest of the story of mankind would be a battle between Satan, his demons, and the children of Eve. And not only that, but man's own fallen nature leads him to crave power and control and domination. Right? And we've talked about that, right? If, 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 you, if you have a naturalistic worldview, you don't believe there's intrinsic value in people, and you believe we're here to consume and enjoy. And if you believe there's no intrinsic value and in in that we're here to consume and enjoy, the only relationship we have to each other is power. Because the only question is, do you get to consume and enjoy or do I get to consume and enjoy? Right? And that's the way the world works. If you go watch how people behave and you apply that, that is how people make decisions. It is staggeringly accurate. Praise God. Right? Praise be to God. We have a different understanding. We understand there is an intrinsic value in everyone. Right? We all have the image of God in us. Right? And we're here to glorify him. And if you have the image of God and I have the image of God and you're here to glorify him and I'm here to glorify him, then our relationship is love, right? But that's not what this is, right? This is power and this is the raw nature of man. Uh, the sword that, that he carries is not the large two-edged sword back in verse, but is a, is a dagger used in hand-to-hand combat. This is personal, <laughs> right? This is This is personal. Um, and the fiery color of red, right, is, is fresh wounds. Um, Matthew tw- 24, 6, right, Jesus told the disciples that a sign of the age would be when you hear wars and rumors of wars. 
right? We thought, and as, you know, I grew up in the 80s, right, 70s and 80s, and so we thought nuclear war was this, right? Some, sooner or later, the Russians were going to bomb us. I lived next, my dad was a scientist at an Air Force base, so we were going to be the first ones to go, right? Obviously, Tullahoma, Tennessee was deep on the Russians' radar. I'm sure, I'm sure. We, had, we have nice lakes, so I'm sure they were coming after us. Right, and then and then we got right, but then the internet came around. I don't know, and I'm a, I'm a technology person, right? And they, and they said if we can all just talk to each other, we can just have peace, right? If we all just talk to each other, because we've been on Twitter, and there's nothing more peaceful than being on Twitter, right? If we can just talk to each other, we'll bring peace, right? That's not how we work. Again, no intrinsic value, and consume and enjoy. And it all becomes a power struggle. It all becomes about domination and dominion, right? It all becomes about domination and dominion. Isn't that just, in the, and that's what's so, prof- I mean, you see these cycles, right? You see this right now. You see these horsemen. You see them ride through our country. You see them ride through our community. You see them ride through our families, right? Mm. Mm. All right, seal three. The black horse of famine, right? The, the natural disasters are a consequence of war, and famine in particular is one. Famine, right, when, the, when the, not only was it the battle of war that destroyed things, but when a conquering armor came in, they just stripped everything, right? Stripped wealth, stripped anything valuable, stripped all the food, right? It takes a lot of food to provide for an army, right, to get out there and fight, right? Football teams eat a lot. Right, football teams eat a lot, right? And these were, I mean, you can imagine carrying all this armor, carrying all this, right? They, they would just ravage the lands, absolutely ravage the lands. Um, you know, and you look at places like, at, like Africa where that's going on today, right? Widespread famine, then we send food and what happens? Right, the rich and the powerful take it and lord it over the poor. Right, that's what this, and that's what this, where he talks about denarius, right? Denarius is a day's wage. And it says, for a denarius, you'll get enough food to either make a loaf of bread or have some cheap barley. Right? But, the, but what was untouched? The wine and the olive oil. What is that? The provision of the rich. The poor will get poorer, and the rich will get richer. The poor will get poorer, and the rich will get richer. Not that we see that today. Right? Hmm. Mm-mm-mm. All right, seal four, the pale green horse of death. This is biological evil. Green is the color of disease, sickness, and things that are rotting, right? The stuff in the back of your fridge that you forgot about, right? That's that pale, this is that pale green. Uh, it's dying but not yet dead, right? Hades is coming, right? The Greek underworld is coming, is coming right behind. The, the underworld is coming right behind, right? and that's a, and so then a summary of the impact of the horsemen, right? Widespread death by sword, famine, plague, and wide animals, right? That nation would rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There would be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains, right? They're just like just like the birth pains of the new age, right? That's what all this tribulation. That's what all this. This is. So, uh, so what do the horsemen represent? One thing is they are empowered and given authority by God. Right? Don't, don't forget the order of this, that we did the throne room before we did these seals. Because God is on his throne. Right? The ancient of days is on his throne. Right? And the lamb stands among his people. 
Right. They do not have authority of themselves, only what is given to them by God. Right. They are not all powerful. Right. Their authority is given to them by God. Right, and so they, that what they represent, they represent the history of mankind, right? All of these horsemen ride throughout our world today. Tyrants, wars, famines, plagues, death. They are all the marks of the history of humanity. Cycles of these things. Cycles of these things, right? Cycles of these things. Let's go over to Matthew 24, uh, 24, 4. Right? And, they, and they asked him, right, tell us when these things will be and what will be a sign of, the, of your coming and the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And they will see and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginnings of the birth pace. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And there will be many who will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because the lawlessness will be increased, the love will grow, in many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. Right? So this wasn't the first time that John was hearing this rea- these realities, that he'd heard, he'd heard them before. Right? And there's God's justice in this. Right? Those that refuse to worship the real God and his king are handed over by God to false gods and false kings. God wants people to see what happens when they get what they want. And then Hamilton says, so God lets these fools have their day in the sun, and he lets all this happen so that his wisdom, power, and righteousness will be seen clearly. Right? God eventually will let you, that's one of the things you, we, we learned with Balaam, right? Eventually, if you say, this is what I want to do, God will let you do what you want to do. To your detriment. Right? If he, you don't say his will be done, he will, he will let your will be done. Right, but there's also mercy at work here. Note that each form of evil is not sovereign, but God is. God exercises his authority to bring some measure of restraint to the fallen world. Right, but these must take place so the end can come. Right, these are the things that happen so the end will come. Right, Chesterton says, as long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength at all. Like all the Christian virtues, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. Right? Until things, right, it's easy to be hopeful when things are going good. Right? When things are hopeless and you have hope. A dear friend of mine passed away, a college, a high, well, I guess somebody I grew up with, uh, went to high school together. And she turned, she had her, she turned 50 back in September, had her colon scope. Uh, found stage four colon cancer. Did two chemo treatments, both of them failed, and she was gone in 20 weeks. Strong Christian woman. The beautiful thing was, was all the way to the end, she said, God has a plan in this, and I have hope. 
And when the last chemo treatment closed, and we talked at the end of last week, she said, I don't, I'm not afraid to die. She said, I know, I know where I'm going. She said, I'm afraid of the road to get there. And in the Lord's mercy, she was gone in nine hours. And that was God's mercy on her. She has five kids on their family. They're, they're the Sluter family, if you'll keep them in your prayers. But it's when things are hopeless, right? When she was with that, there was no hope of her getting better. That's what the doctor said Friday. There is no hope for you to get better. And she said, I will be healed. I will be healed. If not here, then there. Right? That's that hope. That's when hope has meaning. Right? When things look hopeless. When you look that doctor in the eye and say, I will be healed. I will be healed. Amen? Hmm. Uh, and in counseling, uh, a lot of times in counseling, right, they talk about things have to get better before they get worse. That's a lot of what these cycles of revelation are, right? Before heaven can come, all of these cycles of, all of, these cycles of destruction are coming. The fifth seal, right? And this is, this is fascinating, right? So with the fifth seal, uh, let me get back over In the fifth seal, we see persecution, right? Um, he opens the fifth seal, and, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness, right? So we, so we see you know, bad things happening to good people, right? And this is not good people because they're sinless people, right? They're good people made good in the, in the blood of Christ Jesus, right? These are the saints. And, and so, right, the first four seals preview human life in general between the first and second coming. But what about Christ's people in this time, right? The opening of the fifth seal tells us what, where, where we are, right? That they will continue to be slain because of the word of God, right? That we will be slain. And it, and it is an active, we will continue to be slain, right? So if you think things are bad now, hang loose, they're fixing to get worse, right? One of the things you get from those first four seals is hell is coming on a horse, Hell is coming on a horse. Right? It, it, it's going to get worse. Uh, it's interesting where the believers are, right? They're, they're located, right? John sees under the altar of souls, right? And, and are the Christian martyrs. And, that, and, and, and that, that's, where, that's the altar you make the sacrifice on, right? That's where the blood of the sacrifice collects, right? The blood representing the life. Right, and, and there's several, right, there's several facts. Exodus 29, 12 says, and, and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. Uh, Exodus, uh, let's see, Leviticus 4, 7, and the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Right, in Leviticus uh, 17:11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. Right, this is where the life collects. The souls of the saints are the life. Isn't that wild? Right, 
though wicked humans may kill Christians, from God's point of view, their deaths are a special heavenly sacrifice. Remember Paul over in Philippians? He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I rejoice, right? It makes me happy. And it should make you happy too. Right? And his last writing is 2 Timothy. Do you remember what he says? And I am being poured out as a drink offering. He's not being spilled, by the way. He's being poured out. That's, there's an intentional act. He is being poured out. And that's the abundant life. Right? In spite of our cultural mythology. Right? It, that's, that's the abundant Remember Jay's sermon this past week right, on, the widows, on the widow's offering? Right? Who understood abundance? At the widow the widow right because the rest of them gave out of their abundance what does that mean they think the re- that all the material stuff was their need <laughs> right god knows what you need and will give it to you right she knew god that her only need was god right that when that when we go through troubles when we go through difficult times and that's you get the point of the lampstands right we are the church right we are the church and when jesus is walking amidst the lampstands he's walking amidst us so in times of persecution when it gets hard when things get difficult jesus is not above us or beside us he's in the midst of us he's in the midst of us the slain lamb standing and you also get right that he's this isn't the first time he saw the slain lamb john was in a locked room and what do you see standing in their midst the slain lamb Standing in their midst after the resurrection. See, see all the circle? Got it? Isn't that cool? I think that's really cool. Right? The martyrs called out in loud voice. Right? Several times John's already heard the shouting. Um, but, he's, but they're calling out, right? How long, O oh Lord? Right? How long? Because worship isn't always happy. Right? It's not always happy praise. There's also lament. And we miss that as a culture. We miss lament, right? Being sad about the way things are. But when we see sin in our world, it should not make us angry. It should make us sad that people choose to live sinful lifestyles, that people choose to do sinful things should break our hearts and have us find compassion because we know Jesus can save them. But we rarely have lament. We rarely have lament. And that's what these saints are doing, right? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Right? And note they didn't avenge themselves, right? Romans 12, 19, right? Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, right? Jesus has got this. It'll be okay, right? And Luke 18, 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Right? And all the wrongs, other other injuries, right? All the wrongs will not be made right until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been, has been, as they had been, was completed. God knows how many martyrs there will be. Then the end will come. 
Um, God also knows how many people will be, who will be converted before the end, according to Romans right, 11, 25. John and his readers are thus warned by this verse that times of martyrdom lie ahead before the end. Who will be killed? Those who are servants of Jesus and therefore brothers and sisters with each other and his family. Who will be killed? Those that follow him faithfully. Also, and I love that, right? Until the final reckoning, those already martyred enjoy their state of rest. And the, and the Greek word there is abide. Abide, right? From John 15, that we abide in him. It's, it's throughout John. And that's a unique word, all right, to the, to the Bible. We don't, it's very rarely in casual conversation you're talking to somebody, you hear them use the word abide, right? That's a, that's a, that's a unique theological word. And it's, and it's beautiful, right? They're given a white rope, um, we don't really, we don't necessarily know this, but they're, but they're ones that seem, they seem to be a badge of honor, right, reserved for the martyrs when you, when you kind of look at them throughout Revelations. And after they wait a little longer, they will be revenged, right? In Psalm, which comes to Psalm 63, 3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Wow. Seal six, natural catastrophe. Okay, between the first and second coming of Christ, God will permit natural disasters that cause people to respond by seeking to preserve themselves and blame God. Luckily, we don't see any of that. Yeah. So with the breaking of the seventh seal, right, John observed phenomena, more violent than anything he'd seen. Um, it's really cool, right? The earth was affected. And, right, and this is the first of five references in Revelation to an earthquake. The sun was affected. Sackcloth was a coarse wooden, woolen fabric worn by ancient Israelites as a symbol of mourning for the dead disaster of repentance. Right. The moon was affected. For the whole moon turned to blood red and would be as extreme as for the sun to turn dark. Right, the stars were affected, and it's like acorns, right, falling down from a tree. You've been, I, I, I have a client, and they have those walnut trees all around the parking lot. And so as I walk in, I hear ding, ding, ding against my car, which is not, which while it's kind of musical, is kind of discouraging because each of those is probably a dent in my car, right? And that's what they're saying. These stars are falling like, like, like when the wind blows in those trees and those nuts are ripe. Um, the sky is affected. Right? Ancient people thought of the sky as it appeared, right, a, a vaulted dome over the earth, which explains kind of the idea of it rolling up, that the, that the sky would, would literally be uh, you know, affected in this way. And then mountains and islands were affected. Right? The most prominent and stable land features is a mountain. The most prominent and stable ocean feature is an island. And for all of them to be moved into places indicates ge geologic catastrophe of gigantic proportions. Right? And this, you know, Jesus says, right, there will be earthquakes in various places, right, in this Olivet Discourse. There were earthquakes in various places and famines. This is beginning the birth pains in Mark. He said Jesus was forecasting the way things would be between their comings. Um, and John saw this a little bit, in, 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 and he's speaking somewhat in hyperbole, right, because he says the mountains are moved, but then they go hide in the mountains. So, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, 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 it's in exaggerated language. Um, Second, the, people, the peoples of the earth respond to major physical calamities as God is angry. Right, your insurance policies, what does it talk about? Acts of God. Right, even, even our secular legal universe recognizes that. 
And uh, third, this interpretation, the way, the way you see this is, is it keeps it consistent uh, with, the, with the all seven seals must be broken before the final time of judgment. Um, the, first, the first human response to these natural disasters is self-preservation, right? And so they, so they, they go and hide in the mountains. Uh, it's interesting that they personify nature. They call to the rocks, right? They, they call. Can, can rocks do anything? You ever yell at a rock? I guess it's an emotional exercise, but the rock doesn't do anything. What does Jesus say? If you don't worship me, even these rocks will cry out. Even these rocks will cry out. Right, but they try, they call out to the rock. Can the rock bring life? No. Can the rock actually do anything? No. But they're so afraid, right? They have nowhere else to call because their gods are just as dead, just as, dead as the rock. Right, rather than repenting, they try to hide. Right, Adam and Eve. Rather than repenting, they try to hide. Hmm. Second response is to, is to the natural gaster to blame God or the gods, right? Depending on kind of how they personify it. Um, while the wrath of God, right, this is kind of the first time it's appeared here. The um, That you, it, it's fascinating to me that people that don't believe when something bad all of a sudden are angry or upset with God, right? Because if you don't believe in him and don't believe he has any power, who exactly are you angry with? Who, who, you're, you're, it's just like calling out to the rock. Right, but what we see, right, the day when the day of tribulation comes, right, the day of wrath, who can stand? Right, the answer is nobody but the Lamb. Right, nobody can stand these tribulations. Right. Mm. All right. Chapter seven, the interlude. The hundred forty-four, the famous hundred forty-four thousand. Right. So John, John changes perspective, right? All of a sudden, he's, he's up above, right? He's, 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 at a, he's at a heavenly perspective because he can see angels standing at the four corners of the earth, right? The four corners of the earth. Um, they're powerful beings that appear nowhere else in Revelation. Um, they're servants of God created to obey him in, in this specific way, right? To cause judgment winds to blow at certain times and in certain ways, uh, and, and four, right, is the points of the compass uh, to basically symbolize the earth. Every, other places we've seen four, we've seen it symbolize the earth in Revelation. Uh, then John notes a fifth unidentified angel, right? This one comes up in the direction of the sun, comes up like the sunrise, right? Comes up out of the east. How cool is that, right? And, and he bears the seal of the living God, which is different from the seals on the scroll. Right? They are served to hide the contents. And here the seal protects God's people from the, destructive, from the destructive effects of the judgment angels who will harm the land or the sea through the powerful winds. Right? And this is similar to, remember, Ezekiel 9, 3, and 4.
Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub in which it rested at the threshold of the house. And he called the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that committed to it. Right? He was marking those that would be passed over. The ones that were sealed. And that's what, the, that's what he's doing here, right? He's going, he's, he, he, the men were marked with a Hebrew letter for T. It was like a plus sign or an X. It was clearly literal, right? Here, God's seal is almost certainly symbolic for the ancient world did not know the practice of stamping foreheads. But, you know, it's whether it's, whether it's uh, literal or not, it, it, this is different than the mark of the beast, right? This is a different, a different thing. And so we get to the 144,000, which is the second largest specific number in the New Testament, uh, Revelation 9.16 is the largest. And it's, it's uh, you know, is it, is it, why identify God's servants in this way? And you know that, especially as a mathematician, right, this is 12 squared times 10 cubed, right, to go back to your, your high school math class. Um, and the, the precision of the number suggests the doctrine taught elsewhere that God's election is a precise number of individuals, that he knows the exact number of Gentiles chosen for salvation. He knows the exact number elected to martyrdom. Thus, we would expect him to predetermine the exact number elected for this special sealing. Right? And John... John um, it's also interesting that the list is like a military, militaristic arrangement of Israel's camp back in Numbers 2. Right? But now it's all God's children who are in the exodus from slavery to the world. Or to the freedom of, of, of the promised land. Um, there's a unique arrangement. Right? Judah goes to the head of the line, and Dan and Ephraim, two tribes that were indicted for idol worship, are missing altogether, and Levi's returned. Um, and so God has secured the salvation for all his people, not just ethnic Israel, but from all the tribes of Israel. Right? And that's. Galatians 3.20, right? If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. Uh, Galatians 6.16, and as for all of who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel, Israel, the God of the Israel, the God of Israel. Um, let's see, and then, and then when were we sealed, right? We were sealed at the moment of salvation. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 2 Corinthians 1.22, and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Right, so we were, we were sealed. In our, and what this leads to, of course, right, is, is, is the praise of the saints. Um, right, John heard about the lion in, Roman, in Revelation 5, 5, and 6. John heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but instead saw the lamb standing in the center of the throne. Right, the same person from a different perspective. Um, in Revelation 7, John heard about the 144,000, but instead saw the great multitude. Right, same group, different. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches. Right, palm branches were the ancient equivalent of balloons at a party. Right, a mark of joy and festivity. And they only appear twice in the New Testament. Uh, here and over in John 12, when the, when the followers of Jesus welcomed him to Jerusalem. Um, in the Old Testament, they were used at the Festival of Booths right, to celebrate God's provision for Israel in the way of the Promised Land. Um, the heavenly crowd shouts, Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? They give credit where credit's due. Um, 
The heaven reality is the the heavenly reality is the absolute truth against which the nightmare must be measured. But for those who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, there's foreshadowing of the New Jerusalem, a virtual catalog of biblical promises, which the Lamb has become our shepherd. Right here we find ourselves again in an amazing scene of worship. What do God's people do in difficult situations? Find a way to worship. We find a way to worship. Right? Because God is among us. God is among us. So we get to seal seven, right? The prayers of the saints. Jesus opened the seventh seal and just as he broke in the other six. Um, what happened was, was a dramatic pause, right? Silence in heaven for about half an hour. It, it surely must have mesmerized God, John. Right? With all of the stuff going on, all of a sudden there's silence, right? The living creatures, the elders and the angels who had created, who had ceasing, who had without ceasing praised God from the beginning of creation, now fell silent perhaps for the first time. Right? Something major was about to happen, this eerie calm before the storm of the judgment blows. And that was one minute of silence. A lot of times I'll start off prayer with silence. Two or three minutes of silence. It is amazing how uncomfortable people become after about 15 seconds. Right, about a minute in, I think they're getting ready to go up and get some coffee. Right? Because if you think about our world, there is always noise. God bless our choir. And they're moving next week, by the way. This will be our last week of background music. They're moving upstairs. So I'll have to get a CD to play or something. Just so we're, because we're, after doing this for two or three years, we're kind of used to it. Right? But silence makes us uncomfortable. Right? We, we are never, it is never silent around us. Never silent. Can you imagine heaven being silent for 30 minutes? And John now notices a new group of right, angels, but parallel the four restoring the four winds. There are seven angels who stand before God. Um, and there's, there's traditions that say they're the seven archangels, which are not named in scripture, but named. Um, you know, Michael and Gabriel, the only two angels named in the Bible, with Michael the only designated archangel, and Gabriel the only one who claims to stand directly before God, Jude 9, Jude 9 and Luke 1.19. Uh, the archangel accompanies the trumpet call of God and the return of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Um, each angel received one of seven trumpets. Now, these are not the Hebrew shofars, right, the ram's horns. These are like tr long, thin horns with a mouthpiece. and they're, they're not meant to do something melodic. They're meant to send a signal, right? They would sound these. These were in particular sounded when armies would go to war. Because right? you didn't have walkie-talkies to talk between the troops. And so you would blow these horns. And this was the way the troops knew it was time to go to battle. This was the way to know the war had begun. Were these horns in the hands of the angels. 
The angel was given much incense for his censer, perhaps taken off the altar. Uh, and the, the grammar in that, in that verse is really tough. If you look at different versions of the different translations of the Bible, be translated different, that verse will be translated different ways. Um, are the prayers of the saints added to the incense, or does the incense equal the prayers of the saints on the earth? Um, 5.8 kind of a, a, a suggests the second interpretation, so we may better translate it. He was given much incense to offer, which is the prayers of all the saints. The incense offered at the altar is the prayers of all the saints. Do you think your praying makes a difference? It rises before God like incense at the altar. How cool is that? How cool is that? Right, the effectiveness of the incense is measured by its smoke. The incense is potent and acceptable for it all, for it went up before God from the angel's hands. Once more, we see that what the saints do on earth has a direct impact in the very presence of God. What the saints do on earth has, a very, has an impact in the direct presence of God. When you think whatever you're doing for God in obedience doesn't matter, remember where it rises to. It rises to his presence, right? And John didn't report the content of the prayers, right? Uh, certainly the martyrs were praying, how long will the Lord tell you, right? And, and he answers, wait a little longer, um, Right, the prayers that ascended before God are transformed and hurled back to God. And the mood changes from intercession to judgment. Right, the, angel, the angel filled the censer with fire with burning coals and hurled it to the earth. Right, this, is, this is like Ezekiel back in chapter 10. And the blasting censer hurled down anticipates the blowing of the first three trumpets. Three times John will see a blazing object strike the earth with cataclysmic results. Um, right there, the... The very sight of the heavenly throne has also included peals of thunder and flashes of lightning. Now this is added to the earthquake and shaking in heaven. Um, those four phenomena are also recorded occurring on the earth when God revealed himself on Mount Sinai to Moses, right? And they all happen twice more in Revelation. Um, I, think it's, I think it's staggering that the prayers of the saints are what break the, break the silence of heaven. It's the prayers of the saints going up as incense that break, that break the silence of heaven. All right, and if we have, and this was your comment from, a, from a, your old notes, it said, if we, if we don't pray, what will the Spirit set on fire? <laughs> right? So it, is that not staggering? Is that not staggering? And through all of this, right, hell coming on a horse, Literally, hell is coming on a horse. If you, if you think it's bad now, hang loose. It's fixing to get worse. Right? Because these are the birth pains of the new age. These are the birth pains of Christ's return. And so what do we do? Right? Christ is among us. He's walking among the lampstands. And so we worship and we pray. And so we worship and we pray. We good? Okay, and I think I left you a little bit of time. Uh, and so Jay's going to come up. We, your second handout is on some of the, some of the different interpretive perspectives. And so Jay's going to come up and teach through that. And then if we have any time left over, okay. and uh, we'll get to some Q&A. Joe's, run, Joe's running quickly. He's on the run. <laughs> Joel's on the move. <laughs> 
Didn't know you'd get a report on all that. All right. Thank you, Joel. Appreciate it. All right. Uh, good stuff tonight. Uh, this is where uh, things begin to get a little more challenging uh, from an interpretive standpoint. And so um, grappling always with when you introduce some of the different interpretive angles and those kind of things, uh, a lot of the interpretation, uh, a lot of the kind of disagreement or different views, so to speak, uh, don't land officially until Revelation 20, uh, which talks about the millennium. Uh, but uh, I wanted to begin to introduce you guys to, to some of the different lenses by which you can look at this. So uh, what you've got in front of you is a handout that I, I've used in pastor training in Kenya and in Nepal. Uh, to kind of give a big picture um, of eschatology, which is just a fancy word, right, for the end times. Uh, and so I want to start there. Uh, some of this you guys have heard before, but, but some of it you haven't, um, because I think it'll help you understand that there are some different angles and lenses by which people view these events. And some of the questions that you guys enter tonight um, go along those lines. So that word eschatos in the Greek means last. And so it's the study, uh, and it's a legitimate area of theology, study of last things or future events. Um, one of the very preeminent New Testament scholars on these issues, his name is Paul Meyer, um, and uh, I was reading an article with him not too long ago. Uh, and so the person said, you know, you're an expert on the end times. And he's like, no, I study this stuff a lot. Therefore, I'm an expert on why no one should call them an expert and call themselves an expert, right, uh, on the end times, because there's a degree of humility to which we have to approach these things. Um, I believe that God has revealed enough to us uh, that, that we can know and discern signs of the times and some things like that. But I also think there's a degree, healthy degree of humility that we have to have uh, as human beings when it comes to these issues. So there's the picture of the mountain range again. I've covered that. We've covered that multiple times. Uh, but if you want to look at it horizontally, uh, as uh, you know, time moves across chronologically, uh, you can remember we are at one fixed point. God sees the whole range. Or you can look at it in depth. Uh, that again, what the prophets, what John saw, were things that had immediate relevance, uh, but also things that were in the distance, in the horizon. That's part of what prophecy does. We call that telescoping sometimes. Uh, there are two categories of eschatology. The first one is personal. That's the doctrine of what happens to us after we die. Uh, this includes a biblical understanding of death, their intermediate state, and gl ultimate glorification. The Bible teaches that upon death, believers go immediately to a place uh, and condition of blessedness in the presence of God. Unbelievers go to a place of misery, torment, and punishment. But general eschatology is the study of future worldwide events, which includes the second coming, the millennium, the final judgment, eternal punishment for unbelievers, and eternal reward for believers. So, number five, there are many different interpretations of these doctrines doctrines, which has often led to debate in the history of the church. So we have to remember, while God's word is infallible and inerrant, we are not. Therefore, we should study these things in prayer and with great humility. Uh, it's always a hermeneutical principle, uh, and that's the fancy word for the interpretation of the Bible, to begin with areas of agreement. Uh, and then move into areas of differing viewpoints. So the four big buckets when it comes to eschatology are, number one, the futuristic view, that most of the events described in the Bible regarding the end times are still to come, uh, and when they happen, they're going to happen really fast, very closely together. There's also the preterist view that holds that these events described were taking place at the time of the original writing and are thus primarily in the past, with, again, some telescoping into the future. C, the historical view holds that the events described were in the future at the time of the writing, but may have been or are being fulfilled in what we're in now, the church age. 
And then finally, the symbolic or kind of idealistic view holds that the events described are not to be thought of in a time sequence at all, but they refer to timeless truths, not to singular historical occurrences. Uh, So like the events of a play, they're representative of something. So those are four big buckets, and there are Bible-believing, gospel-believing people who believe all four of those, uh, or as we'll discover, some combination of those. But number seven, there are two common and opposite errors that are made when studying the end times. One is speculation. This occurs when people attempt to discern more details from the Bible than the Bible provides, often obscuring in the process the main purpose or the main focus of the text. So we have to be careful uh, to say, hey, this is maybe speculative, this is our best guess, you know, those kind of things, but we don't want to major in the minors. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of people want to go. Uh, And so, but on the other end of the spectrum, we also don't want to turn to cynicism. And this occurs when we ignore or neglect what the Bible says about the end times because we're uncertain or unsure of how to interpret it, right? Uh, so we want to calibrate uh, where we stand uh, kind of in the middle there uh, as, as we go. Uh, the Bible distinguishes, and this is helpful, between the last days and the last day. Uh, we are now living in the last days. Uh, that refers to the period of time uh, between the first and second coming of Christ. But the Bible talks about the last day, and sometimes biblical translations and theologians will even capitalize it to set it apart. Um, And so the last day is the second coming of of Christ. Nine, uh, a study of eschatology helps us understand how to live with urgency for Jesus in the last days, even while we await his certain return on the last day. Uh, We sometimes call this the tension between the now and the not yet. Uh, And I love what Martin Luther, the the reformer, once said. He said, I live this day in light of that day. Uh, And so your view on the end times does matter because it influences how you live in the here uh, and in the now. So that's kind of eschatology as a whole, the return of Christ, when and how. Number one, the Bible is clear and almost all theologians agree. There will be a sudden, personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. Number two, we should eagerly long for the second coming. The degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives. Number three, the second coming of Jesus Christ is the basis of Christian hope that history is indeed moving somewhere. Uh, Part of what makes Christianity unique is that we don't believe in just an endless cycle of history. That's why John wept last week in Revelation 5 when no one can unlock the scrolls. Because otherwise, it's just all karma, right? We're just on the wheel of history, and it's going to repeat itself over and over again. No, we believe that history cycles to the point of some of the things we talked about tonight, but that it is moving, right, in those cycles towards God's ultimate fulfillment and therefore the ultimate hope that one day God will consummate what he started, that one day God will bring to fullness everything that he's promised. Number four, What's our attitude while we wait for the return of Christ? Well, it should be what we call actively waiting, engaged in obedience to him and leading fruitful and productive lives up until the very moment of his return. Uh, if you've studied First Thessalonians, you know this was an issue in the early church. They heard Jesus say he's returning very soon. So some of them sold their stuff and they decided to sit around on their hands, right, and wait for Jesus' return. And Paul said, no, 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 that's not what it looks like. We don't know, right? Jesus himself taught that. Therefore, we have to actively engage our world as a witness until he returns. But yeah, we've got to live every moment uh, as if he could return at any time. 
So number five, we don't know specifically when Christ will return. Anyone who claims to know specifically when Christ is coming back is wrong. (laughs) The Bible simply says that. Um, And they are attempting to deceive themselves and others. Uh, Some of them are more well-intentioned than others, but the reality is they're usually trying to gain a name for themselves. Uh, They know that they're going to make headlines. Uh, A couple years ago, some guy named Harold Camping, right, put a date on the calendar, and then he suddenly had to revise that date, and then he had to revise it again, uh, you know, but he made headlines. He drew attention to himself, and clearly that's not the point, is to draw attention to us uh, and our predictive abilities, but instead, uh, which, by the way, are not very good over the course of man time. Uh, I've got a book full of uh, some pretty hilarious things that have happened uh, as people have tried to predict the end times. So the point is, is that we don't know but instead we should be obedient. And number six, we all agree on the final results of Christ's return. So when we begin to get into the various interpretations, we need to remember that we're all on the same team here, people, all right? Because we believe that unbelievers will be judged and believers will receive their final reward. Believers will live with Christ in a new heaven and on a new earth for eternity. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will reign and be worshiped in a never-ending kingdom with no more pain or suffering. Uh, And to that, we can all say amen. Uh, and we long for that day. So we need to keep, um, uh, be mindful of that, uh, even on maybe some of the particulars in which we might have different opinions. So the big question for a lot of people is, well, could Jesus really return at any time? Well, of course, there are many verses that predict a sudden and unexpected imminent, the key word there, coming of Christ. And there's those scriptures listed out for you. But there are other verses that seem to indicate that several important events or signs must be fulfilled before Jesus returns including, as we've talked about, the preaching of the gospel to all nations, uh, the great uh, tribulation there, false prophets working signs and wonders, uh, signs in the heavens, the coming of the man of sin and and rebellion, often called the Antichrist, um, and the salvation of Israel. Uh, And so those signs are given so that they will intensify our expectation of Christ's return and to keep believers from going astray and following false teachers. The signs are given to us by God to keep us from being surprised by what we would consider otherwise absolutely remarkable events. Uh, So uh, we have some degree of awareness. And so when some of these events begin to take place, we're like, we, you know, yes, that, that's, you know, Jesus warned us or Jesus prepared us for that. So three possible solutions to this that have been, uh, of course, proposed. A, Christ could not come at any time until all of the signs are fulfilled. B, Christ could come at any time if the New Testament is talking about two distinct returns of the Christ. Uh, One secret coming, which is often referred to as the rapture, uh, in which Christ takes Christians out of the world, and then after seven years of tribulation on the earth and fulfillment of all the signs, then there is a visible public triumphant coming. Or C, all of the signs have already been uh, have already been fulfilled because they're symbolic, and Christ could in fact return at any moment. So, number 10, what we know is this. While Christ tarries, we must always be ready. Uh, And an illustration of this, of course, is everyone who wears a seatbelt while driving or purchases insurance, right, is getting ready for a future event. Uh, We don't know when, right, we're going to get into fender bender, but for most of us who drive, especially if you live in Spring Hill, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? 
um, we, uh, we know they have insurance uh, on our homes. We went on away on vacation a couple of years ago and had a pipe burst and uh, came home to $50,000 worth of, of damage in our home. Uh, you purchase insurance, right? Because you know it's an inevitability that life will happen uh, at some point. And so the point there, of course, is that we have to be ready. And I love Luke 21, 28, where Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, look up, right? When things begin to get scary, what do most people do? They look down, right? Oh no, take cover. Not us as believers. We can hold our heads up with hope because why? Our redemption is drawing near. Uh, And so again, I pray that this study brings you more clarity and more hope uh, as you lean into it. All right, I think we have five minutes. Boom, look at that. Uh, See if we can uh, tackle a couple of these questions this evening. We've got four questions. All right, four questions. First, does all of this happen before or after the rapture? Wow. Okay. Let's, might as well open up big. Yes. Go big or go home. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the things we'll get into, we haven't talked about the rapture and the different varying viewpoints around that. We'll, we'll talk about that again. A lot of that has to do with the millennium conversation uh, a little bit later. But the rapture is the view for those of you who are maybe not familiar with that term, or most of us have heard it, but we're not quite sure of a definition of it, uh, by with, which, and it comes out of uh, 1 Thessalonians, where uh, Jesus will return and uh, secretly remove believers uh, before the period of the great tribulation. Uh, and so obviously as we get into these interpretations of six, seven, and so on and so forth, that's a real question. What is the timing of this? Um, and is the rapture a literal rapture or is it a figurative uh, rapture as well? Um, so the answer to that, you're going to have to hold your breath on. I don't, and I don't have a definitive answer. I don't either. Uh, so other than the reality <laughs> that we, we begin to see history, as we've talked about tonight, moving through these cycles. Um, and we know that one of the things that happens throughout history is that God leaves his people in the middle of difficult situations as a testimony to his sustaining power. Amen. Um, right? So Amen. Um, you could easily interpret and argue that we're already involved, right, in the things, the, the mess of our world. And so we're still here, right? Uh, and everybody is going to experience some degree of suffering uh, and, and pain uh, and death and persecution um, in this world. Absolutely. And that rolls right into our next question, which is wars and rumors of wars have plagued mankind since before Jesus walked the earth. So how do we gauge them as a sign? Well, that's a sign that God's word is true. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah. There's a sign that God's telling us the truth because wars and rumors of wars. And if you look at the horror of war and how it, it continues to grow. Evolve, yeah. I mean, it, it is horrific the way people come up with killing each other. Yeah. I mean, it, is truly, it is truly staggering when you look at the tens of millions of people that died in World War II. When you, and, the, and the vicious ways. You look at World War I. It's, Micah did a study on World War I. And just the viciousness, viciousness with which we kill each other. I mean, to the degree that people actually look at each other and say, we can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's war and then there's mustard gas, right? Yeah. 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 And I think to maybe too specifically, maybe if I'm, I'm reading that question correctly, that some of these things existed before Jesus, you know, famines and earthquakes. Oh, yes, yeah, they did. The um, what marks, you know, what Jesus himself said would mark the, the, the nearing of the end would be the intensifying. The intensification of those things. Uh, So probably an increase in severity, uh, an increase in frequency. uh, And, of course, the infamous illustration, and ladies, I don't have to remind you of this one, right, but is that the labor pains get more intense before, you know, the birth. 
Um, and so the, you know, the contractions, right, get closer and closer together. Uh, and so that's the word picture that Jesus gives us in the Olivet Discourse uh, in Matthew 24, uh, Mark chapter 13, those kind of places. So, so I think that's how, and it, so I don't know about you guys, but it certainly seems to me, and I, sometimes I wonder if it's just because we have access to worldwide news, is it really that much worse? But it certainly seems like more and more frequently we are hearing about tsunamis and earthquakes and you know, devastating events worldwide, and they certainly affect a broader swath of people than ever before, in part because the world's population uh, is that much higher, and so the devastation is that yeah, much more greater. intense, the human toll, uh, in a lot of different ways. Absolutely. Of the three solutions, where does Station Hill stand? <laughs> Hang <laughs> I knew, on. I knew that was coming. Well, yeah. actually, <laughs> here's the deal, right? You guys are going to tell me, because you are Station you are Hill. Station Hill, right? right? So... But we'll work through that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get through that. Uh, where does green instead of pale horse come from in the fourth seal? The, the word for pale there is chloros, which is green or pale or yellow green. And so that's just, there's just a variation on that, on that Greek term for that. And it is, a, it is the color associated with sickness and disease, right? Chloric, right, where you see, you see sickness. Um, Let's just say there's a reason, you know, in your box of 64 or 128 crayons, <laughs> they have all these crazy names. That's not one yeah, of them. Chloros is not in the there. The color right? of puke yeah, and yes. death and decay, <laughs> right. right? So that'd be a that's, lovely that's color a, to hand to your four-year-old. That's a special old. edition of Crayola. That's right. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, the Greek edition. <laughs> the, the, Greek end edi- times, the end times The end times of version of colors. Yeah, we can market that. And, and, uh, wow, that's just loud. That's wow. Pray for our children, folks. Uh, let's see. Where are the souls under? Why are the souls under the altar, and why are they not in their glorified bodies? I don't. I don't know that we don't know they're in their glorified bodies. Right. Um, but the location is certainly symbolic in the in that they are under where the blood collects. Yes. And, and so that goes back to those echoes of the Old Testament, the echoes of the sacrifice, and the echoes of the of the life. Yeah. I, I don't think that that text is telling us that they're there in a bloodied you know, mangled, you know, state. persecuted states. Right. It's but the location, location there. Yes. That's so, that's so symbolic because that's where the blood, right, where the blood would collect, yeah. the life would collect. And so that, that tells that the martyrs, right, the people that sacrifice are the lifeblood of the church. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so and that's what we always tell our boys. We, we told our boys when you're looking for somebody to model after, don't look for the people who win. Mm-hmm. Look for the people who persevere. That's good. Right, because those are the ones that form character. Because Romans 5 says perseverance is character and character yields hope and hope that does not fail us. That's right. right? And so that's why the martyrs are the Speaking of Romans 5, right, the question, who can stand, stand. right, Romans 5 tells us that's how we stand. We stand right. in grace. Faith. Yep. You know, and that's the only way that you can stand. Yep, that's awesome. That's, that's all the questions. That's all? That's all. Wow. I know. It's a you must be a better teacher than I am no, because they have I, a lot, I think, more, I think they're just lot dazed, more questions they're, they're dazed into when silence. I teach. I think they're, they're just, they're really praying for the end. They're, they're praying for Jesus to come right now. They started about 635. And so they're just waiting for, they're just in hope right now. They're hoping for you to come, Lord Jesus, come. I think I heard once or twice while I was teaching. So it's. All right. All right. Well, let me pray and wrap us up. Heavenly Father, uh, we are grateful that we can look at these incredible depths, uh, the incredible depths of your truth and the riches of your word. And uh, God never really plumb. Uh, all of its meaning. Uh, and so, God, I pray that we walk out of here tonight more encouraged, more um, secure, knowing that you are sovereign over history. Uh, and that, uh, that Father, that uh, you uh, are the one uh, who holds history in your hand. And, God, you are the one uh, 
who uh, God sees uh, those who have sacrificed for you, who have endured to the end. Uh, and Father, the reality is, is none of us could stand uh, on our own two feet. Uh, none of us could stand, uh, God, in the face of, of the things that uh, uh, ha- the things that have been faced and the things that we will face uh, in the days to come, uh, without your presence and your power. Uh, and so, God, I pray that we walk out of here tonight more sure, more clear, more hopeful. Um, and that God, the cry of our heart is come Lord Jesus. But until, uh, in your divine sovereign wisdom, you choose, uh, to, to send, um, Jesus God, uh, for the second coming, I pray that you will find us obedient, uh, that you will find us living with a sense of urgency, uh, and that you'll find us faithful to you and your word. So thanks for my friends and this time we've had together tonight, uh, may it produce fruit in our lives and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Oh, Lord.